I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 264. And today on the show, we're diving into the story of my very first hunt for desert whitetails, also known as coos deer. Welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And uh, we're here today. It's myself. We got my buddy Andy May. And we got Furter. And we're talking desert whitetails. I just got back from a Mexican coos deer hunt. A really cool hunt. I was out there with the meat eater crew. And I I thought a good way to do this would be to have a couple people interview me um, rather than me just kind of tell a story. And Dan couldn't be here today, so I knew that Fertz and Andy could fill in well. Um, And so, you know, in a second here, I'm going to give them the keys and we're going to turn around on me and we'll kind of walk through this whole hunt, what happened, what I learned from it, um, you know, maybe a few things that might be able to help other people out there that want to try a coos deer hunt someday. Um, and I guess for those who aren't familiar, coos deer are basically just white-tailed deer that live down in the desert southwest. Um, so a really, really cool critter. But we'll get more into that later. Before we do that, though, I wanted to kind of shift gears a, a tiny bit here for just like two minutes. I had to make sure we cover this because, further, last time I was hanging out with you, you and Andy were together... You went on a doe hunt yes. um, on yep. on one of the properties that I usually hunt. The two of you guys went out there and had a pretty cool night. And, and since you're both here, I, I figured we should at least talk about that a little bit. Um, you guys had a pretty good time, didn't you? Man, that was a great time. That was a lot of fun that night. I don't know if Andy had any fun having to sit with me for a couple hours, but <laughs> I, don't know, I sure had a good time. <laughs> so Yeah, it, it was a good time. Yeah, so Josh, you were you came to this property that I hunt. You're gonna come out and try to shoot a doe, and then yep. Andy happened to be stopping by my place to pick some stuff up, and you were over at my house at the time before you're gonna head out to hunt, and it just kind of worked out that Andy, you were gonna hunt somewhere else. I was like, well, why don't you just go hunt with Josh? And uh, so you guys did. Do you want to walk us through that that hunt, Josh and, and Andy? Sure. Yeah. I mean. 
So I I was actually out there the uh, the night before at your at the place you're hunting and unfortunately missed one. Not sure what happened, but didn't come didn't come together for me. So I came back the next night and just as I was about ready to go out and start getting around to head out and uh, hunt. Andy showed up and uh, yeah, it just worked out perfect. Where we went out and sat together and you know it was uh is what was it like the 27th or something like that andy i don't know yeah i believe end so, of december yeah. there in the late yep. late antlerless season and i hadn't filled a tag yet all year so i was i was feeling the pressure to to put some meat in the freezer uh in the last couple of days of the season and um lucky luckily enough it kind of all came together and uh worked out for both of us to to get a shot you know we were talking leading up to you know prime time like all right what are we gonna do we're gonna do a one two three shoot are we gonna you know am i gonna shoot one and then you shoot one so we kind of had it worked out where if it if it if it if it happened um i was gonna take the first shot and then uh but if we could make it happen where we could do the one two three shoot we'd give it a try and you know as soon as deer started piling out that just went to (laughs) (laughs) that all went out the window just a little bit of chaos for a few minutes figuring out which one we were going to shoot and all that stuff but well how did that yeah. go i don't even remember hearing I mean, uh, yeah, I mean i know you i know you sh- i know you shot first josh and i guess that's all i really know i saw i saw yeah. the little instagram video you guys took yeah. but but how did that all turn out i, I got to remember back to this how it all happened and andy may have to help me out but if i re- if i recall the first group that came out was like one mature doe and a couple of yearlings um i think one of them was a button buck and uh there may have been two two mature does that came out and with how we were set up in the blind andy had a pretty good shot at them but they were behind some some brush and some limbs for me so it was kind of just a waiting game for them to to get you know to clear those those limbs for me and finally they did and we were trying to communicate back and forth of all right should we do the one, two, three, sh- and I, I just kind of blacked out. I think I don't really remember how that all went. I think Andy said, "Just shoot one as soon as you get a shot," and pretty much what I did. <laughs> and then you you dropped yours, and yep. what was it? Maybe an hour later, Andy, that your doe came out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Josh put a great shot on his, and uh, th- pretty much thought that was kind of the end because you know there there was actually. Uh, when Josh shot his, a couple, a, another big group of uh, antlerless deer had entered the food plot. So there were several um, and, and a few mature uh, mature does. And, and I was going to let him shoot first and then me try to get a, a quick second shot, a, a, a second shot off. But um, when he shot, they all kind of ran back into the cover, you know, a big group of them. So I thought that that caused enough commotion where you know it was probably over for the night but then yeah probably in that last 20 minutes of light or so um we see another you know small group of antlerless come out and they enter the the food plot right there much closer and uh gave josh the camera and and he was able i was able to video him and he was able to video me and put a good shot on her and she went she went a little ways but you know pretty easy track job so uh it was cool it was it was a a really like at least for me a low stress kind of just fun hunt you know we were giggling in there like a couple (laughs) of kids and just you know just having fun you know just enjoying each other's company and 
you know, it's kind of a nice change of pace sometimes when you're after, a, you know, after a buck all the time. It's usually kind of like a solitary, you know, endeavor. But it, it's I really enjoy kind of, you know, partnering up once in a while like that and, and sharing a hunt. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And that spot is particularly good for it. Yeah, it may have been low stress for Andy, but I, I'll tell you what, it was pretty stressful for me sitting there. I was like, man, I'm sitting with Andy here. This, this dude just like gets it done every time, and I, I don't want to screw up. I can't do anything stupid like I usually do. And it's, it's, it's pretty low stress with Mark in the blind. I, I know I'm not the only one who will make a dumb mistake then, but you know, when I'm when I'm with Andy, it's like I had to I had to bring it up a notch. So I was, I was a little nervous. Yeah, man. It's like when I'm on this meat eater hunt with the, with, the, yeah. with Steve and those guys, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> Don't do anything stupid, Mark. <laughs> yep. yep. Um, so I was going to ask then further, um, this is your first hunt with the machine, Andy may, uh, did you have a takeaway? Any like lesson learned or, or anything from this experience? I mean, he is like a machine. I mean, it's just like, moment of truth man just like just gets it done and uh there's no like wavering at all just went into that you know that that mode and man when that when he had that shot opportunity he made it count so that's uh you know i always try to get into that like the autopilot you know just muscle memory you know just kind of when the, the the time arises to to be present and just you know kind of let every everything take over and not not get lost in the caught up in the moment and that's probably my biggest takeaway just watching him kind of go through that and what he does is pretty cool to watch yeah he's automatic and uh and andy this is probably your first time ever hunting with an icon in the hunting industry who just goes by a single name just further um yeah any any takeaways from that (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah man it was he was just uh you know we he was, I couldn't tell that he was, uh, you know, feeling pressure. He was, he seemed pretty laid back and we were uh, laughing and having fun. And, uh, I don't know, he just seemed like a really like fun guy to hunt with, you know, like you'd, you'd have a lot of laughs. Um, and you know, the whole time leading up to the, the two kills, you know, we were just having a good time. So I don't know, he's someone, definitely someone that I would like to share a hunt with, you know, yeah. doesn't take himself too serious um, can, can laugh and have fun. And, uh, man, I tell you when, when his doe came out and he had that shot, he sure looked like a, a machine to me, he put her down right in the <laughs> plot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, uh, I've enjoyed hunting with both of you. So I figured you guys would get along, would get along just fine. Um, mm-hmm. so well, that was fun for me. I'll take that. that Andy, I'll take that as an invite to Nebraska next year with you two then. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a heck of a trip, Josh. You would have, you would have enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So speaking of heck of a trips, though, we do, we probably should focus on the main event here. Um, I just got back from this coos deer hunt. It's quite a trip, um, but I wasn't sure like what's the right way to to kind of walk through the story. Should we talk and you know, just like kind of strategy focus? Like what did I learn? What did I do? How did it go? Or was just the story of the adventure most interesting? I don't know. I don't want to make these decisions, so I just thought I would. I would take my my host hat off and give you guys the host seat and controls. You guys are now the host of the Wired Hunt podcast. I'm your guest. Um, I'm here to talk about hunting desert whitetails. Further, you can maybe I'll let you 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 kick things off if you want. Do you want me to just 
talk about something from the beginning, walk you through the story? Do you have any initial questions? What do you want to know? Well, yeah, I, I, I guess I'd kind of like to know kind of what all led up to the hunt. And like, it just seems like quite the undertaking to plan that type of a trip. Um, so I, I'd love to hear some of the, just from the start, kind of everything that went into it, the, uh, you know, packing or the planning, you know, what, what can you bring? What can't you bring crossing the border and, and kind of how, how do you, how did you prepare to be gone for, you know, however long you were gone for on a trip like that? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Cause that was a lot of the uncertainty. Well, like there was a lot of uncertainty around the trip leading up to it for sure. Um, just having never, you know. I've never even hunted deer of any kind in the mountains like this. I've never mule deer hunted, never coos deer hunted, um, really almost never rifle hunted for deer at all, other than, you know, when you and me take our rifles up to deer camp up north, but that's like a 40-yard shot max. Um, nothing long distance. I've never done any kind of long distance deer hunting like this. So um, there are a lot of different things coming into this one. Um, as far as planning, though, like the logistics of the trip, admittedly this one was was not too hard for me because it was with the guys from meat eater so it was planned by them to film for a tv show basically um so Giannis and seth and those guys handled most of the logistics um yanni has got a buddy jay scott who um who yanni used to be a guide for and jay sets up hunters down in mexico with ranches to hunt on so he helps organize the logistics of getting folks across the border and finding places that they can hunt. Um, and then just kind of gives you the, gives you access to this place and then you go out and do your thing. So that was kind of our situation. I basically just needed to have all the gear I needed. I needed to be able to shoot and, um, just needed to be able to follow instructions as far as getting down to Arizona. And, um, you know, we got down there and I met up with Giannis and Steve and, cameraman chris rick and seth and uh ryan callahan and then um a couple other guys so we all met up there in arizona we all flew in from our various places got our rental vehicles when you got that many guys i have to say there's so much luggage so many groceries i don't know how much money we spent at the grocery store but we had three vehicles just loaded down to the absolute brim so we just we crossed the border with a lot of stuff um, yeah you had sent that picture yeah like just before you guys left I was like holy cow like man that is some gear that they've got going across the border right there yeah man and that kind of made me a little bit I don't want to say nervous, but it was just a little bit unsettling because you kind of hear some horror stories a little bit about crossing the border and, you know, there's just been a whole lot of stuff in the media lately about some, some rough stuff going on, um, on along the border in Mexico and kind of drug cartel related violence and stuff like that. So like, that was like a little bit of a shadow that hung over all of this. Um, Giannis and the guys had all said, Hey, we've done this trip a bunch of times. We've crossed the border many times. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty darn easy process. There's nothing to be worried about. It's very safe. So, um, I felt pretty comfortable coming into it, but I'd be lying if I didn't admit that there's a little tiny part. It was a little voice in the back of my mind that was thinking, man, you're going to roll over the border in these pickup trucks with like, who knows how many dollars worth of camera equipment and like 20 Yeti coolers sticking out the back and all this stuff. Like there was a lot of money rolling over the border there. Um, if there was someone who you know was into some shady dealings we certainly would have been a, a good target so there was just this small little bit of apprehension as we went into it but uh but it ended up being not bad at all 
We went through the border. Um, it was a long process, like a whole bunch of different customs things. I don't know. We were probably there for several hours as they dealt with tourist visas and gun permits and vehicle permits and, I mean, a lot of paperwork. But again, Jay and Giannis really made that pretty easy. So, yeah, a couple hours of custom stuff, and then we rolled through. And basically, you know, this we, we came into this little border town on the Mexico side. We drove through it for five minutes, and then it's like you're in the middle of nowhere. You went from, like, this, this kind of admittedly kind of rough town into then this, like, wide-open, beautiful landscape. Um, you know, just looks like southern Arizona or maybe some parts of southern Texas. Um cactus and acatillo plants and maybe some mesquite some places and desert grasses and these big rolling hills um and it was just it was just gorgeous and uh and then made our way to the ranch but i think you know other than those things that just laid out the other biggest piece of preparation for me josh was when it came to shooting um, because as, you know, as I mentioned, I just don't do very much long range shooting, mostly bow hunting. And then when I do pick up a firearm, it's usually a shotgun or a muzzleloader. I'm usually shot, not shooting much past a hundred yards. Um, but these guys are saying, Hey, you know, we're probably gonna have to be taking shots at 300 yards. Um, it's really hard to get close to these deer and this kind of terrain. And, and that's kind of something you need to be prepared for. So, Leading up to the trip, I shot my my rifle quite a bit, um, but I was using, to make a long story short, I'd gotten very late notice about needing to get these guys information on what gun I was going to take. Like They needed to send in this paperwork, and they needed it today from me. They said, hey, we need to know the serial number of whatever rifle you're going to take on the trip. And this is a long time back, like back in the spring or summer. And the only rifle I have is my grandpa's old deer gun. It's like a 1980... Remington semi-automatic rifle, um, probably never been shot past hundred yards, and that's all I had. So I was like, "Well, that's all I've got. Here's the serial number, um, and that's kind of what I've stuck taking." So I'm shooting that leading up to this trip, and is when I go past, you know, two hundred yards. I mean, it is all over the place. I mean, you, I sent you some pictures of the groups, Josh. I was like, uh, "Man, I mean, I'm getting it in the kill zone, but past two hundred yards, I mean." It was not something I felt really comfortable with. So when I was driving out that morning to the airport in my head, I'm just thinking, man, I'm just not going to shoot past 200 yards. These guys are going to think I'm crazy. They're going to give me a hard time about it, but I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to keep it close. Um, but as I'm driving, I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe um, Giannis had mentioned to me he was going to bring a gun and hopefully hunt if everybody else failed the tag. So then I thought, well, maybe – Maybe I could just use Giannis's gun because I used Giannis's rifle on our caribou hunt last year. So like, well, maybe you know I should just use his, and that's dialed in and a good bolt action, accurate gun. And long story short, on that, I gave him a call and started chatting with him about the situation. He's like, yeah, yeah, man, just use mine. Um, it's dialed in; it'll be great. And I'm so glad I did because when we got there that first day, we all went out and checked the zeros on the rifles, and it was just a night and day difference. I mean, my groups went from being embarrassing past 200 yards to being like dead nuts inch inch and a half groups um so a, i felt good that i wasn't as horrible as a of a shot as i was thinking after shooting earlier so i don't know i think that's the the biggest part as far as preparation was was making sure i could shoot at those distances um you know i had all my basic hunting equipment that i would take like on an elk hunt 
Um, same kind of clothes, same kind of temperatures. It was like a September elk hunt kind of weather. Um, you know, the one interesting or unique set of gear that I did bring that was different than maybe another Western hunt that I've done was just longer range glassing equipment. That was going to be, um, I was told a huge part of what we're doing is just glassing hillsides at a very long range for a very long time. So I brought not just my regular 10 by 42 binos, but I also brought a pair of 18 power binos. I brought a spotting scope and I brought a tripod for all of those. Um, and that ended up being very, very important. Um, so that that's kind of what got us there. We, we all that stuff happened. Got to the ranch. It's huge, huge property, untouched. I mean, really beautiful. Other than cattle being ran there and cowboys working the ranch and stuff, but uh, a very cool place. And, and when I got there and checked the zero on the rifle and got unpacked, it was kind of, you know, here we go. All right, we need to take a quick break here to thank our partners at. Onyx. They are the creators of the Onyx Hunt app. It is a very, very handy tool for whatever you might be doing during the hunting season. And right now we are on the precipice really of shed hunting season. I usually like to get kicked off in mid-February and I'm using Onyx a lot during shed season for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you're out there walking around with your Onyx Hunt app, you can see exactly where you are in relation to property borders. So if you know you can only hunt this one property, you're walking around looking for sheds, you want to make sure you know where those lines are. You can see private property lines on the Onyx Hunt app, and you can see public property lines. Very handy. Another thing I'm using the Onyx Hunt app during shed season for is getting property owner information so that if I want to get permission on another piece, maybe I'm walking around somewhere and I see that, oh man, all the deer sign kind of looks like it's in that hillside next to that cornfield. I wish I could walk over there. Well, you can get that person's address, show up at their house, knock on their door, whatever it might be, try to get permission there. This is going to give you all the information you need. So highly recommend it. Very handy for a lot of different situations. You can find the Onyx Hunt app on any mobile app store or by going to onyxmaps.com. Hey, Mark, I got a question. Um, one of my favorite parts of like Steve's shows is that he sometimes like dives into like the history of a certain species. Did he... Did he do any of that uh, in regards to the coos deer? Did he did he talk to you guys about that at all? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, a little bit. The, uh, probably the the most interesting thing, or a couple of the interesting things, would be number one, articulating the fact that coos deer are in fact white-tailed deer. There's a lot of people that have the questions like, is this a different species of deer? You know, is this the same thing? Why does it look so different? And, and yes, coos deer are white-tailed deer. Um, but they, they're kind of a subspecies of white-tailed deer. And so mm -hmm. basically they just have some morphological differences, morphological differences being just some things with their appearance that have, have adapted over time to their surroundings. So they're, they're much smaller body, body size compared to deer up by us. Uh, I mean like a buck down there could be like 80 pounds, 90 pounds, maybe something like that body size. Um, and then of course their antlers are smaller too. They are also um, much more adapted to living in mountainous environments. They're moving up and down. I wouldn't say like rocky, craggy peaks in this area, but they certainly weren't afraid of some elevation. Um, and then I guess the one other interesting thing that Steve had talked about was uh, this guy who had given the name Coos Deer to these guys, Elliot Coos. Um, but let me, if I'm going to get this story wrong, I think his name was Elliot Cows. And so that's why some people believe they're supposed to be called cow's deer 
because this biologist or, or whatever it was, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to butcher this story. So just forgive me. I'm trying to remember this from like a late night podcast that we did with Steve. Um, but I think his name was Elliot Cows, and that's how they originally got their name. And then over the years, hunters kept calling them coos. And so now there's this debate. Are they coos deer or cows deer? Supposedly the proper pronunciation is cows, but everybody says coos. So that's mm-hmm. that's why they are what they are. But but you know, probably one of the biggest things I took away from the whole trip was the fact that these are still whitetails. Like they looked a lot different in some ways. The terrain was super different in a lot of ways. Um, but I saw a lot of things that were really similar. Like the rutting behavior, this is the rut down there. Um, I mean it was just like watching whitetails up by us, which was pretty cool to see bucks chasing does, to see bucks making scrapes, see bucks cruising down a ridge line just like you might see in Iowa or here in Michigan or something. Um, but I was seeing it, you know, with cactus in the background, that kind of contrast of the familiar and the, in the unknown was maybe one of my favorite things about the whole deal. Did you get a sense of like, I know it's probably tough cause you've, you, you know, hunted them for a short time, but did you get a sense if you thought they were, you know, more weary than, you know, your typical Midwest whitetail, less weary, uh, or is it more related to like the terrain they live in? It's more open. They can see a long way. I think they are much more um, dependent on sight because of that kind mm-hmm. of terrain. So definitely sight was the biggest thing. Like we were just worried about being seen. Um, hardly ever thought about wind direction at all. Um, now that was probably partly because we were just so far almost all the time. Even when you're you know sneaking in, you're at long, long distances still. Um but, you know, the guys there were talking about how they're so weary and how, you know, they are, you know, there's a lot of predators coming after them. There's a lot of mountain lions. Coyotes could definitely take down a deer this size. Um, supposedly, there even had been jaguars in the general area, too, which is pretty cool. Um, or a jaguar, I guess. Um, so a lot of predators. But, man, I still think that these deer, are they're not getting messed with by humans anywhere near as much as deer by us are so so no they don't i don't think they're nearly as is you know on a string like our deer are up here um there's there's cowboys you know riding around on horses pushing cattle and stuff like that but i just i just don't think it's like what we have here so um they seem to be in you know a very natural behavior they seem to be just doing their thing doing what deer do um not nearly the level of I don't know, apprehension or, or just general paranoia that I feel like our deer have. Um, but you know, like you said, it's hard to say just having watched them for seven or eight days or whatever, but we got out there that first morning and then for the next seven days, all I did was watch these deer. I mean, literally every day, all day, you, we drove through the ranch to an area where we wanted to hunt. We hiked up to the top of a mountain or a big glassing peak or something. You sit down, you put a pad down on the ground, you pull out your tripod and your binoculars, and then you would just glass. You would just scour going left to right or up and down over and over and over and over and over again with your binoculars for, for like 10 hours, 11 hours, just staring through your binoculars. A lot of time watching these things, I guess, it'd be more accurate to say I spent a lot of time watching hillsides occasionally watching these things. Um, cause that was probably another thing that stood out was just how hard it was to see these animals. Um, you'd think with how open the country looked, you'd be seeing deer all over the place. But, uh, 
Kuzir been called the Grey Ghost. I'd been I'd heard they've been called, and I think they definitely lived up to that reputation. Um, you would, you know, you'd be scouring a hillside. You would like maybe watch it for two hours, and there hadn't been a single deer. And then all of a sudden, you go over one more time, and then boom, there's a deer right there, like out in the wide open. You can't believe you missed it two seconds ago, but here's this deer. And within two seconds, maybe you blink your eyes or you look over to the person next to you and say, hey, I got one. And then the next second you look back and the deer's gone. I mean, that happened to me so many times. Um, I mean, that very first morning, we went up to the top of this mountain, did what I just said, set up, glass, glass, glassed. And that whole first day was basically what I just mentioned to you. We would spot a couple deer, we'd see them for a few seconds, a couple minutes maybe, and then they pass behind one bush and then you never see them again. Um, it was pretty bizarre and that really was, was kind of how the first two days went. Um, just a big crew of us hiking out, glassing a lot, seeing a few deer and then watching those same disappear. Um, and we saw, you know, not a huge number of deer, um, maybe, maybe 10 deer a day, a couple bucks in that group a day spread out through the course of that 10 hours. Um, but it was definitely you know, it required a lot of patience, like a different kind of patience than we have in a tree stand, I think. Um, cause you know, when you're a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come through like home, you know, if they come, you feel pretty certain you're going to see something and you feel pretty certain in most cases you're going to see something that's going to be kind of close. Like you're going to get to really experience it here. You know, you could search for seven hours and not see anything, but if you did, it might be 1500 yards away and you're just watching like a, a little speck on the other side. So it was different for me. Like these, these guys had all done those kind of hunts. This is like a little different. I had like a make, make a mental shift to be able to like be in it in that kind of way. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, Andy, for, I know, I know you've wanted to do a coos deer hunt someday. Um, that would be one thing I would recommend to like anyone who's going to try something like this is just be prepared for, for a very different experience and go into it. Like, realizing there has to be a tremendous amount of patience associated with this kind of hunt and just willingness to sit behind the glass and, and, and search and search and search. Yeah. How much, how much time did you guys spend? Like, like, let's say you guys set up, you know, you find a, uh, you know, a high knob, a good glassing point in your glass and say you're there for an hour or two hours. Like when did those guys, or when did you guys have the inclination to, to move and change positions or did you just stay patient and trust in the spot that, that you were in. Yeah. That was one of the big questions I had coming into the whole thing too. Um, and it seemed to vary by person. Um, when we first got there, Jay, um, the guy that Giannis had worked with in the past, he, you know, took us out to the, to the property and drove up to one of the hillsides with us and kind of pointed out some different areas that he thought might be good. And his thoughts were, um, you know, don't feel, you know, don't, get tied to any one area for too much, you know, move around till you find some deer. Um, but you know, Cal Ryan definitely was of the mind. Like he found a spot and he found some deer and then he kind of wanted to stick with it. And he has a ton of experience with, you know, hunting mule deer and sick deer and black tailed deer and all sorts of stuff like that. So he definitely has like a system that works and he kind of found an area that he felt confident there, sh- there were deer. He'd seen some and it was just a matter of just eventually seeing the right one. And that was kind of the that was kind of the trick was that you could watch a hillside for hours and not see anything, but 
you know, the guys that had hunted here before in different places in Mexico always said, there's deer here. Like, they're there. You just can't see them. They're so small. They're so well hidden into these hillsides, these little juniper bushes and little trees and scrub oaks and stuff. All you need is the deer to like take two steps, and all of a sudden you realize they're there. So I think we're constantly dealing with that balancing act. Like, do we bounce around from place to place, or do we just sit here long enough and then wait till one steps out? Um, for me, I found myself like wanting to move to different places just cause I like needed the change of scenery. Um, but you know, Steve, Steve and Giannis and me kind of were on like a half a day kind of system. In most cases, we usually kind of stuck it out in the same general region for two, three hours and then maybe just move over one little knob or look at the other side of the ridge for the next couple hours. And then by the time the afternoon rolled around, if nothing had been going, then we would shift. Um, but definitely as the trip progressed, as the, as the week progressed, we started to kind of zero in. Like we found a few zones where we started having some confidence that there were deer and there were going to be deer. And once we had that zone in mind, then we did stick around in some, some certain spots for, for a little bit longer. Um, I don't know if we ever did figure out what the right answer was, but I think if anything, confidence has something to do with it. Um, you know, no different than when, you know, any of us go out and hunt a spot during the rut or something. If you feel confident in why you're there and what's going on, it feels a whole lot better sitting there all day. You don't mind it. But if you're really uneasy about the decision you made or you don't have that confidence, um, you know, it's a whole lot harder. So that proved to be true here too. Yeah, that was one of the things that I struggled with myself when I was hunting mule deer in Wyoming, just how long to give each glassing position. And I think I was probably like you, not quite as patient as, yeah, qu not quite as patient as I should have been, you know, in a lot of instances. I, I kept wanting to, you know, see the next canyon and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I missed some deer doing that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like you hear like Western guys talk about whitetail hunters sitting in tree stands like, oh, I don't know how you can do that. That's got to be so boring sitting in a tree all day. I could never do it. Um and that's what you and me do all the time. But then when I go out west and I'm sitting on a hillside for a while, I get impatient, you know, after a few hours. And I think it's I think it's probably just because I know I can move, like the possibility is there to move. While sitting in a tree, you just know you're locked there and you're you're gonna stick it out for however long you decide to. Um, but for whatever reason, it definitely definitely was different for me. I definitely had this wanderlust um boiling up in me early on. And uh and yeah, it's kinda of funny. Those first two days, it was that kind of situation where sat most of the morning one spot, most of the evening another spot, glass, 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 saw a few deer. Um, the third morning, though, we head up to another hillside, glass, glass, glass. I spot a pretty nice buck, thinking he might be a shooter. He goes over the hill, um, decide we're not going to go because it's like, I don't know, a mile away. Keep glassing. Maybe an hour later, we spot some deer on this other hill ridge not too far away now i think a thousand yards away and um glass up another nice buck and i'm like man that's that's probably that's probably a shooter and that, one that was one of the hard things leading into this was knowing how to determine like what's what's a shooter buck here in this area um because these deer are so much smaller than than a lot of like mature whitetails would be elsewhere but what was kind of easy for me was that a decent a good coos deer buck is kind of the equivalent to like the buck in Michigan that 90% of guys would shoot. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I just yeah. said, like, if if somebody in Michigan would shoot that deer, it's probably a shooter here. <laughs> so basically, anything that was like ninety inches or bigger, maybe was like, okay, that's that's probably one that we should chase. Um, so we saw a deer kind of like that. I don't know, ninety inches, hundred inches, like it's just a nice solid eight pointer. Um, and that's when I got to enjoy that, or my wanderlust got to come out then because we saw this deer, decided to shoot her. And then that's when I got to actually stalk and move. So me and Giannis and Seth took off after this deer. So Giannis was running the main camera. Seth was running what they call the long lens camera, like a big zoom-in camera. Um, and then I was hunting. Steve stayed up on the ridge to glass from his position. And um, if if I got down to the bottom of this ridge and I looked back at him and, and the deer had moved somewhere, he was going to wave a, a, an orange bandana at me to kind of indicate where that deer went. Um, and so I just kind of ran down this big hillside all the way down to the bottom. There was this little creek drainage, follow this creek drainage and in the bottom of the valley, separating the ridge we were sitting on from the ridge where this buck was, there was this little knob, um, kind of like a mini ridge that maybe went up one third as high as the others. And it kind of was, was perfectly positioned to put ourselves within range of that deer. So to make this as fast as possible, snuck up to the top of this rise, didn't see anything. We thought maybe the deer had gone lower down the ridge. We'd, we'd seen this one tree with a white spot on it, and that was the last spot we saw this buck. And from our position, I could just see that white tree, but if the deer had gone any far farther beneath it, we wouldn't have been in sight. So we belly crawled another like 70 yards. Well, we kind of stalked in on foot and then belly crawled to this final little lip. And, uh, and then from that point, I could see this doe up there watching the doe. And then I see a buck glass at the buck and I see like he's wide, but then he turns his head and he's kind of got shorter tines. And I'm thinking, man, is that the same one? Um, I don't know, but it's gotta be that same buck. There was no other bucks in there with that doe. Um, he moves into another spot. He's in this like big shady brushy patch. I get my binos on him. I get my range finder on him. He's in shooting range. Giannis and Seth are all set up. They can film it. Um, the bucks, you know, there's a, there's a lane to this deer. He's at 230 yards. So he's like within the range. I felt pretty comfortable with it all kind of lined up perfect. Um, but I was pretty, you know, pretty excited at this point, even though 230 yards is, is really long. It's, it's, that's a, it's a, it's a significant distance between me and the animal compared to most of the encounters, right? Like 20 yard encounters, 30 yard encounters when you're bow hunting. So you wouldn't think, or at least I wouldn't have thought leading into this, that that would be like an intense moment, but it definitely still was like, it definitely was still a rush. It was definitely, definitely just had me amped. Um, and I don't know if that was just, you know, like it would be with any hunt or maybe a little more pressure given like how different this was from anything I've done or the fact there was a camera crew I and mean, all those things definitely ramped it up probably but um but yeah it was this it was it was a situation that i didn't think i could pass up so squeeze the trigger and and the buck basically rolled he ran like five yards and was dead and um and that was very exciting and then like 20 minutes later 20 minutes later steve comes walking on the hillside he walks up to me he's like what happened man you shot the wrong buck <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> I shot the wrong buck. 
He's like, yeah, i am got my spotting scope on the buck. All of a sudden I hear a gunshot and another deer comes running into my view with blood coming out of his chest. <laughs> uh, classic, classic, classic Kenyan. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 Um, oh, man. So yeah, that was man. day three, you said, Mark, on, on day three? Yeah, it was day three of actually hunting. Um, kind of day four or five of the trip. But yeah, I mean, there had another buck had went in there and it was a different, smaller buck than the original one we spotted. So, um, it was kind of, I don't know. It it wasn't too disappointing. It was kind of like a little bit bummed, especially cause like five minutes later, another nice buck, possibly the same original nice buck came walking back through and I'm watching I'm like, Oh wow, that is a nice buck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but in the end I was like, man, this is just too cool. Like, first coos deer i can't complain at all he was just kind of a nice little six pointer beautiful little deer um we went walking up to it a little bit later and i mean beautiful beautiful coat on the just this like gray and white mottled coat um but it looks like a whitetail otherwise just really small i could literally pick it up by all four legs and just lift it up and you know throw it over my shoulder if I wanted. And you guys know I'm no Cameron Haynes, um, but I could <laughs> I could have thrown this buck over my shoulder. Um, so yeah, man, killed my first coos deer. That's awesome. And uh, I managed to kind of screw things up just enough to make it interesting. But um, I was it just, wouldn't have been right if you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I was just glad the shot yeah. was good. You know, there was no fiasco with the shot or anything. That was the I just wanted a good clean. Quick kill, no issues. Didn't want to embarrass myself. Didn't want to mess anything up with the with the deer or anything. And so that was, you know, huge relief. I mean, you. I think you remember Josh. I told you my story about last year in the caribou hunt. How that was that was nerve wracking for me in that situation too. And I had to take two shots on that caribou, um, and that you know bummed me out. And so this situation it was a nice kind of uh, what's the word? Not retribution, but. Uh, Oh gosh, I'm having a brain fart. Whatever it was, it felt good. <laughs> so that's how my part of the heart end, or part my part of the hunt ended. Got my uh, got my buck, quarter mount. You could literally fit all of the meat from the deer, all four quarters, back straps, tenderloins, roasts, scraps, all everything, and the skull and the antlers, everything into one backpack. Packed the whole thing out in myself, one load. That's crazy. Oh. Any idea oh. how much you think the live weight would have been on that? Do I don't know. Estimate? 80 pounds, 90 pounds. Really? Something like yeah. that. Not very big. Wow. How difficult. So you hunting him with a rifle. Now say you went back with a bow. How difficult would it be to get one down with a bow? Yeah. So that's the big question that I had coming out of this too. Because by the end of the trip, by the end of my part of the hunt, and then you know I stuck around – and still went out and hunted with Steve and Ryan as they were hunting, and I kind of just helped out with glassing. Um, the one thing I kept craving the whole time was just closer encounters. Like I, I wanted to, you know, to be able to hear the deer. I wanted to feel like the deer might be able to see me if I did something wrong. I wanted to, you know, I, I kind of wanted that bow hunting experience again, as far as being close. Um, and even, you know, even gun hunting in Michigan or somewhere in the Midwest, you still get deer close to you. We never had deer close to us, at least not to me. I know Steve had a couple times and Ryan did um, where some deer were close, but I never saw a deer closer than probably just under 200 yards. So that was the one thing I missed, like that close engagement with the animal. 
Um, so bow hunting, if I were going to go back and do it again, I would want to try bow hunting. I think it is possible if you had kind of low standards, at least for someone with my skill level and experience, um, in a good area, I think you go in there with a reasonable opportunity to shoot a deer possibly. Um, I think what you'd have to do is you would need to spend a bunch of time in the glass to identify a couple of these zones. Um, kind of like where these little rut parties are. Like we ended up finding a spot where I killed my buck and then one other spot where Steve and Giannis ended up killing their bucks um, where there's this little pocket of rutting activity. You know, just like when you're hunting whitetails up by S, you'll sometimes find this little section of a property where there's a ton of rutting activity going on today and tomorrow or something, you know? Um, there'll be a hot doe in the area or a couple hot does in the area and there's a bunch of deer activity. I think the way I would try doing it is I would glass and glass and glass from a distance until I found one of these little rut spots where there was a hot doe in the area. And then I would sneak in there with a bow and put myself in a position where I'd have some opportunities to move up and down a ridge. You know, like I could, I could kind of hunker down the top of a ridge and watch. And if I saw some deer approaching, I could see where they're headed. Cause there's definitely like bucks cruising just like they do by us. There was definitely bucks following does just like around us. And I think if you could see one of those deer heading your way from a distance and maybe you were like in a little crevice on a ridge, or maybe you're, you know, near a little bend in the ridge or something where you could just get behind some cover and move into range of where that spot would be. I think you could have a chance. Um, but it definitely wasn't, at least in what I was seeing, it wasn't like the, archery mule hunt early season type things you see where you watch a mule deer feeding all day and then you watch where he beds and then you sneak into where he was bedded and shoot him out of his bed i'd never we never or at least i didn't see that kind of behavior i didn't see a buck bed somewhere that you could actually see and then stalk in on him um i would kind of think i'd be trying to take advantage of a rut movement as i see it happening and sneak in um but man it would be a i mean it'd be a serious challenge like i said the deer are hard to see um, big, big country. And, uh, I mean, it was a challenge for all of us just to get, you know, within rifle range, uh, that didn't come easy. So trying to get within bow range, that would be, you'd have to go into it with a little bit of like a, Oh, I don't know, a suffer complex. Like you want to suffer a little bit. You'd have to be willing to really go through some crap and probably not have it work out, but be okay with that. That's probably the mindset I would take if I was going to try you know, hunting these deer in that kind of way. Hmm. Do they have a, um, do they have, uh, a, a tendency to be, I think I've read before that they have a tendency to be pretty aggressive towards each other. You know, I, are, are they an aggressive species? I don't know. I hadn't read one way or another if they're any more aggressive than any other whitetail. Um, but I definitely saw aggressive rutting behavior. Uh, so on our fifth day, I think it was, um, we're coming into one of these zones of good activity that we noticed the night before. And we spot a couple nice bucks on this hillside and turns out there's a hot doe and the nicest buck is locked onto that hot doe. Steve and the crew go chasing after this buck. I stayed back on the spotting scope, um, just glassing it, just keeping an eye on the buck. And if somehow it ran off, they could come back to me and I could tell them, Hey, I saw it go over the ridge or whatever. Um, so while I'm watching this whole thing go down, that buck stayed with the doe, but had, it was either four or five other different, I think four different bucks. No, maybe five different bucks over the course of a couple hour period came in, 
trying to make a move on that doe. And every time that big buck would like charge them, he'd run them off. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was like some snort wheezing and stuff going on. It was that kind of behavior. So he would run after this buck, scare that buck off, and then run all the way right back to the doe, standard of the doe. And then another buck would come slinking up from the other side, and he'd charge that buck, run it 50 yards off, then come run back to his doe. And he did that for for a long time. So definitely that kind of territorial rutting behavior that we see here too. Um, you know, when they want to breed, they do not want uh, anyone messing it up. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some fighting. I, I'm sure there's some fighting. Um, I didn't see it, but I got to believe it happens. Hey, oh, I was just going to ask you about these little rutting zones that you're talking about. Was there anything like specific, maybe like a different terrain feature or, or something that maybe caused that little area to be a, uh, a hot zone of activity? Like did any of these different areas have anything in common? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure, but if I had to go off of like the couple things that stood out to me, most all of the best activity we saw was kind of in the upper third of all the ridges on the mountains. So most of the activity was kind of high up on the mountain, top third. And then always, again, this is just like whitetails anywhere else, near some of the best cover in the area. So if you had like a big, thick patch of junipers up on that upper slope, there's a good chance that that was going to be one of those spots that might have some some running activity. So where I found my buck was like the thickest strip of junipers, like a 100-yard wide swath of junipers that came along this ridge. And these deer were up on the upper slope chasing around and stuff. And eventually they moved down lower once that buck locked onto the doe. Um, but it was a very similar habitat to where Steve ended up killing his. A lot of junipers on the side of this ridge, and then there's a tiny bench at the right about two-thirds of the way up the hill. And right on that bench is where the doe was bedded, and the buck was there, and then all these bucks are kind of cruising along the bottom of the cover right beneath them. Um, so I think these deer operate a lot like whitetails by us do in the fact that they, if possible, they like to be in cover or near cover. So they've got that safety close by. Um, and then I definitely saw them, you know, working ridgelines kind of similarly to whitetails by us when they're cruising, you know, cruising two thirds up the ridge. Um, I don't know if they, you know, are scent checking the same way. I kind of assume they'd be scent checking the same way, but I don't know enough about how these deer bed to tell you where these does are bedded. If, if there was a component of like, you know, elevation or, or what, um, but, but it seems like they're doing similar things. So that's, that's my guess. Did you get a, a sense of, you know, when they were on the, the side of the ridge was the, did it seem like they were on that leeward side, that downwind side more often, or were they sometimes even on the windward side? You know, that's funny you ask that because <clears throat> at one point when I was out there, I asked myself the same question and I realized that I had no idea, you know, what the wind was doing. I, there was no cell phone service to ever check what the wind was doing throughout the day. And we just never thought about the wind enough to even stick your finger in the air and think about it. Um, so I don't know. It, it was kind of weird in the way that really this was like a wind irrelevant hunt. Um, and, and the wind probably was very shifty from one area to another. Like we're watching deer a thousand yards away. The thermals were probably doing something completely different there than they might've been doing, you know, with the wind direction coming from our direction, mixing with the thermals coming up. Um, 
So I just don't know how that all worked. I, I, I wish I'd been thinking about it more at the time, but it just wasn't like on our radar at all for whatever reason. So that was kind of unique, and I didn't think about it too much. Now that I'm here, I wish I had. Did you? Uh, so I know you you probably ate really well with with that crew. What was the the taste of the coos beer compared to you know a Midwest whitetail? Did you notice any differences? That's a good question. I don't think so. I think that just tasted like a deer. Um, the only stuff we ate from coos deer, we, we made, um, on our last day there, we made, uh, venison tamales. So cooked up, grounded up corn into like a flour mix, added lard and water and baking soda and made this, I don't know if you guys have heard tamales before, but make this kind of corn paste of sorts that gets wrapped up into a corn husk with this, uh, pulled venison um, that cooks in this, uh, chili Colorado spices really, really good. Um, but some strong flavors in there. So it wasn't like, you know, I could really differentiate, you know, you could have put elk in there or deer or anything. I probably would have told you it was great and couldn't tell the difference between any of it, but I did, I guess I did pull some, some straight venison off the big chunk that we got cooked, just cooked in water for six hours. And that just tasted like any other deer. Um, but good. I mean, really good, nice and tender and tasty. Um, and let me tell you, venison tamales are very, very good. We did, we did eat very well. Um, we actually had, um, there was a lady, I think, uh, who maybe lived on the ranch that we were able to hire to help us with some of the cooking because we were out the entire day. Um, but living in this, we, we stayed at this old ranch house on the farm and, um, so she made a couple dinners with us that were really, really great, like authentic recipes of her own. So she made chili, color, chili Colorado, I think, um, one night and made chorizo um, another night. And we had like breakfast burritos with that. And we ate so many beans. I was in the I was in the bathroom like seven times a day. So many beans over the trip. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really good. I mean, I ate Mexican <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner for eight days. <laughs> this is good. She sounds like a much better camp manager than the last camp manager you had. <laughs> she definitely cooks better than you, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was cool. All right. We need to take one more break here to thank our partners at Morton buildings. And I'm excited about this one because I've for a long time looked at Morton buildings out there on folks properties and been very very jealous. Morton, they're the builders of very high quality steel pole barns and steel buildings. Um, you know, they can be used just as storage for your tractor and your hunting gear. I've seen others where they're, you know, full born pole barn houses where you have a large storage area for your truck and your tractor and your four wheel, but then also maybe half of it is a living area. Um, man, I've kind of dreamed of having my own little hunting property someday and a pole barn house on it. That is is what I'm hoping to someday have, and it's kind of neat to be able to talk about on the podcast here and, and kind of tell you about my dreams. Maybe someday it'll happen, but from what I understand, Morton is the place to get this done. They have over 100 years of experience. They're fully customizable. Like I mentioned, you can have a pole barn house. You can have a huge storage facility, whatever you want. They have several different features that make these particularly high quality, like their energy performer insulation. They have high rib steel. It's very low maintenance, and right now, there are some special promotional prices going on 
that are running through February 28th. So if you are in the market for a new barn or pole barn house or or a little living space on your property, you can head over to mortonbuildings.com to learn more. All right. So uh so Andy had to bounce, but Josh I mean, great food, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. Um I think a few things stood out to me though, and, and feel free to hop in here if you've got some other questions. But looking back on it now, I thought it'd be helpful to mention like a couple of the big takeaways for me. I guess if I was going to do this again, um, you know, I got to watch, you know, my hunt go down. I got to see Steve's hunt go down. Um, Ryan's buck, we kind of lucked into. We were just walking to another glassing knob and bumped this deer. Um, and Ryan got a shot at him at just under 200 yards. And then Giannis's deer was kind of a little bit luck too. Cause that deer that Steve killed, um, after Steve's buck got shot, one of those other four bucks I was telling you about that was kind of trying to get his doe. He just stayed right there. He stayed right in the area. Steve went up and looked at his buck, checked it out. And that buck stayed within like 40 yards, like just stood there stock still. And Giannis and Ryan were a couple hundred yards away watching all this happen. And they're just watching this buck standing next to Steve, not caring. And finally they said, well, <laughs> if we can get Steve out of there, we could maybe get a shot. And so they ended up just yelling at Steve, told Steve, hey, Steve, move 200 yards down the other way. <laughs> and that buck did not move. Steve walked 200 yards away. He was 40 yards from the buck. He walked the other way a long ways until he was far, far away. And then Giannis got a shot of that buck. I mean, just the craziest That's thing. Crazy. Um, but that hunt That's and Kale's hunt, him and Kale's hunt was kind of unorthodox. But I think, you know, me and Steve's hunts, the way those kind of played out, um, kind of to what I've been talking all along about, just like a tremendous amount of patience behind the glass and the importance of how you glass. Um, probably the most important thing was, was having a tripod. I mean, I would never ever hunt with a tripod for binoculars when you're whitetail hunting. But in this kind of situation where you're sitting on a mountain for 10 hours, when you're hand holding them, you don't realize it, but at that distance, it's so hard to keep it steady. But when you're a tripod and you're looking for this little tiny thing in your view, it made like a, a world of difference. Like you could just see so, so much better. You could pan across the hillside so much more smoothly. Um, I mean, it was the difference between seeing zero deer and being able to see 10 deer a day. Um, sure. and then yeah, not only, almost, it seems like a absolute necessity. Yeah. I would say absolute must have. And then the other nice thing is that, you know, if you spotted a deer and you looked away nine times a 10, you'd probably never be able to find it again. Like they're, they're, they're that hard to spot. He might not have moved at all, but you wouldn't be able to find him again. So what you would do is you would see this deer and then you, you spot it and then you're like, I got one. And then you can lock the tripod in place the head the tripod head so you can just you lock your binoculars right at that view so that you know so you don't need to refine the deer it's locked onto where the deer is and you can see it otherwise i mean i had a couple times where my hat knocked the binoculars and knocked it off and yeah could not find them again so just crazy we'd have times when like i would spot one or steve would spot one but nobody else has and so then you have to try to walk the other people into that deer. So they try to describe to them where the deer is so they can find it themselves. And that was, that was a whole challenge of its own trying to verbally convey where this tiny dot is on a hillside, 1500 yards away. Um, 
that that's another takeaway probably too is like if you're there with friends and you are trying to do that and it's very helpful if you can do that because the more people you can have on the deer the better chance it is that you're not going to lose them especially if one of you is going to go stalking and try to hunt them um so like being able to simply and accurately describe the 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 landmarks that you're seeing and then a direction from it so it was like okay do you see that highest peak in front of us with the two rocky boulders on the very top? And then you wait for your partner and he says, yeah, I see that. Okay, now go to the 6 o'clock from that. So the peak is the center of the clock. Go to 6 o'clock from that. Keep going until you see the yellow strip of rocks that go across in a straight line. Okay, yeah, I see that. Okay, now go 3 o'clock from that line of rocks until you see the juniper tree that has two branches on the left and five branches on the right. Okay. I've got that. It was that kind of was like, that was how you had to <laughs> get people to see this deer. Otherwise it was just, yeah, that's, you couldn't, that's wild. you couldn't point them and say, Hey, you're right there. And then the same challenge applied to like when you tried to stalk in close to find him again, you know, when I had to move in to try to get close to my deer to shoot it, same thing from, you know, Steven, I had seen the deer at a distance, but then when he had to try to close the distance to get the shot, it's so much harder to find him again when you're close because the angles are different or the deer might've moved 20 yards or hundred yards or whatever. Um, so the biggest takeaway on that front I had was when you make your move, and this could probably apply to any kind of hunt like this, mule deer hunt or whatever, um, find like a very, very specific reference point as to where you last saw that deer. Um, like I got, I, w- I had a reference point in my head when I took off, but it was a little bit too general. I said, okay, it's bottom third of this super wide strip of junipers. I remember seeing him enter that, that part of it. But Seth, the other guy with me, he had identified a specific tree with a white circle on it. And that was huge because then we knew exactly where on that lower third within that strip of junipers we had to, we had to look. That helped a lot. So, man, that's another thing I would definitely keep in mind. I think it's just patience glassing, having the right gear, being very detail-oriented when it comes to planning your stalks into these deer and how you're going to spot them, um, and patience again, I think. It was just uh, it was different. I mean, it was really, really different. Very cool, but very different. And like I said, I did find myself wishing I could, wish I could get closer to them. That's probably the only, my only regret is that I didn't get to have like, a close call with them. It was some kind of hunting, though, man. Would you ever do a hunt like that? Oh, for sure. I'd love to do something like that. It's just, you know, following along over your Instagram story the last couple of days, you've kind of been putting some updates on it. I go, man, that just looks so awesome. Just so different, you know, than what you're used to. And, and even hunting, like, whitetails, like we've done a little bit out west, it's it's just so much different even than that. And hunting river bottoms and stuff like that. It's just a totally different world, it seems like. Yeah. Well, I've definitely found so, over the years that, I mean, I love – whitetails i mean i've got to hunt a bunch of different things now and i still just keep coming back to whitetails like for whatever reason they're just the coolest um but i definitely have found um a growing desire to experience different kind of whitetail hunts you know like i I love my midwest tree stand thing but it's been a lot of fun to go out west and hunt the river bottoms and it was a ton of fun to go to nebraska and hunt these sand hill type terrains and you know i'm wanting to go do like a northeast hunt here maybe this year and try to track one down and you know just trying these different places that i mean i'm sure you experienced it this year when you went to north dakota right just that different kind of that different kind of terrain slightly different behavior but still the whitetail we love like 
I don't know. It's just a really cool way yeah, to man, engage it, with these critters, isn't it? it? And it's just so crazy as you go to all these different places, how how adaptive they are to the the you know the landscape that they're in or the terrain that they're in. Just, you know, from Florida to Canada to Mexico to to the northeast to the west. I mean, it's just it's just crazy how they can just adapt so well and thrive wherever they're at. I might be biased, man, but uh I think they're I think they're the number one champions of the outdoor world. I think white-tailed yeah, deer have yeah. just like they're so adaptable. They can survive anywhere. Like you said, I mean yep. they're they're all over this continent. Um So for that reason, I think white-tailed hunters are the best too, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um you know, sort of related to the fact that these deer are seen all over the place though. That kind of was something I was thinking a lot about when it came to like the landscape we were hunting. And I mean, it was stunning down there. I mean, beautiful, beautiful sunsets, really interesting, different types of plant life. Like I said, all sorts of different cactus plants and, um, agave plants and century plants, like big palmy bushes, acatillo, which are like these long, I don't even know how to describe it. It looks like something almost like out of a Dr. Seuss book, like, like imagine just like big sticks coming out of a single bush at the bottom, but they stand like mm-hmm. eight feet tall and they have huge, like two inch long spines all over each stick. I mean, <laughs> kind of like our pricker bushes here multiplied by 10. Um, right. But just stunning, really, really cool. Um, but almost every night, I'd be sitting on a hill looking at these just drop dead gorgeous hills and sunsets and vistas. And I kept falling back in my mind to thinking about home in America and thinking about the fact that we have places like this too, literally just like that or other beautiful landscapes like that. Um, but they're, you know, they're open to all of us. Like we have public lands right. like that, that are open and available for everybody to hunt, to camp, to fish, to do whatever. And there just are not many opportunities from what I gather. There are not many opportunities like that down in Mexico. Like it's people, not many people from what I understand hunt down there. Cause it's really hard to have guns. It's really hard to find places to hunt. Um, I, I just think that I, I personally, and probably a lot of other people probably take what we have in America for granted. And this is a, this yeah. is a big time reminder for me, um, just how good we have it. Incredible yeah. lands, incredible, you know, whether it be the rights to public lands, the right to bear arms. I mean, we've got a lot of things going for us that I'm very thankful for. And, and probably the timing that you're down there right now too, with everything going on probably just makes you realize that, you know, even more, you know what I mean? Mm, Just with all the stuff going on with, with the Southern border right now, it it makes you really appreciate, you know, what you got, especially when you're right there in the moment at this point in time. For sure. A lot of talk about the border, a lot of talk about people that want to be in America. Um, and, and yeah, I think my overarching take home message from this trip for me was just, just how thankful I am to be a hunter in the United States of America with the places we have to hunt and the animals we have to hunt and the, the tools and the rights and the opportunities that we have and the management system we have in place. Um, Man, there's just a lot of things going for us here that um, I suppose is just just another reminder for us of the importance of trying to make sure we keep it that way, right? We got to try to keep our public lands public. Got to try to keep them 
you know, as, as wild and as intact as possible. Undisturbed. Undisturbed, yeah. yeah. Um, at the same time, we got to also fight for, you know, our rights to hunt, our rights to, to have firearms. I mean, God, there's just a whole lot of stuff these days that makes you wonder, I don't know. There's a lot of folks coming for the things we want, and we just need to make sure that we stand up for those things that are important to us. And it's not easy. It's not convenient. It's not always comfortable, as my friend, uh, as Randy Newberg always likes to talk about when it comes to public lands. It's, I think he always says it's not easy, it's not comfortable, it's not convenient, but it's always worth it. And, um, and yep. man, after that week in Mexico, that's that's something that's going to be top of mind for me. So that's my Mexico coos deer hunt, dude. That is what I took away from it. Hey. It, it looked awesome. Congratulations. That was an awesome buck. It was really cool to see. What did you guys have? Four guys end up uh, tagging out? Four, well, no, five guys. Because the, the four of us four of us um, killed, and then our uh, the CEO of Meteor Inc., Kevin, he mm. killed one earlier in the trip but had cool. to leave, so he wasn't in that photo. Gotcha. Um, okay. But we filled awesome. five tags out of six that we had. Wow, that's great. That's What, what a cool trip, and... I, I gotta ask. I feel like we'd be leaving leaving this out if we didn't if we didn't touch on it. <laughs> what are these guys like in camp, man? You gotta. It, it didn't look like no hotel beachmont that we, <laughs> we stayed. What's the What's the vibe in camp with those guys? It looks like you're probably laughing the whole time. Yeah, that's a good. That's that's a good point to make. Um, it's probably what probably what most people are interested in. They don't care about if I shot a deer. Or anything. They're more like, what's it like to hang out in camp with Steve Ranella? <laughs> um, it's fun. It's cool. I mean, it's very competitive, I'll say, is one thing. Like, Steve, Ryan, Giannis, all these guys, like, super competitive. So there's a lot of, like, one-upsmanship going on. Like, ah, like, I bet you I can beat you in a arm wrestle. And then we're doing arm wrestle competitions. Um, then it'll be, like, push-up competitions. Then it'll be, how many pull-ups can you do? Um, so... Knowing me, Josh, you knew so I wasn't. You clearly I wasn't, lost all of yeah. these. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Although I'll tell you, not able to hang. after my caribou hunt and then like hunting turkeys in the spring and deer in the fall, I kind of I kind of knew what was what I was getting myself into. So I've been working my way into it. Like there's this thing they call the Century Club. So every day mm-hmm. you want to do a hundred push-ups a day, and so it's kind of like a group thing. Like someone's like, "All right, where are you at?" And like someone's like, ah, "I'm at." 40 all right bust out 25 more and then one person will get down and start doing push-ups and then whoever you know needs to get some more for the day they all hop in and so and when they first start doing it this spring in my head i'm so shitty at push-ups i'm like oh god i can't hang with them i'm not gonna do it well it's gonna embarrass myself i do so few push-ups um so this time around, I was like, no, I'm going to be in the Century Club. I can easily do that. So I just started doing a handful every day and worked my way to the point now where I can I can hang with them. <laughs> so I felt good about doing Are that. Are you doing knee push-ups, though? <laughs> yeah, is that not right, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think it was, I think it was Ben. I think it was uh, watching like Ben O'Brien's Instagram story or something. And I heard... I think it was Steve said, I got to show Kenny how to do push-ups or something like that. I got to show him the right form. <laughs> yeah. Dogging on you a little bit. Yeah, and it's true. He said that my stance on my push-ups is too wide with my arms. <laughs> so they, they they forced me to pull my elbows and my hands in closer to do my push-ups. But I can't – I have to do my push-ups on, like, clenched fists because – I don't know if you remember this back in high school. Um, but I got, like, oh, cyst. Geez, a cyst in your wrist. <laughs> cyst in my oh, wrist. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. So I Do can't. I remember. <laughs> so I can't. 
so I had to do them with fists. Um, so for whatever reason, I usually did them wider, but now I'm doing them tighter, uh, doing those. We had to do a push-up, or not push-up, but a pull-up, not, not pull-ups, arm wrestle competition on the last day, and I came in second. Um, wow. Sort of. I guess third, technically, because Steve was kicking everyone's butt. Like, Steve was... Steve's got it pretty well handled on most of these things. And um, so he was whooping on the cameraman and everything. And I'm like, well, screw it. I'll try. And I at least like gave him a run for his money. Like he gave his big push down towards the end. And everyone's like, oh, here it goes, just like everybody else. And then I was kind of in my head. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going down without a fight. And I was able to hold him for a while. He like, you know. At least made him think that this could be interesting, so I felt good about that. But then, uh, but then Beto, uh, I don't know if you saw the video that Steve posted on Instagram. It's pretty funny. Um, but Beto was one of the guys that helped us with the border crossing and everything and with logistics. Uh-huh. So he was there on our last day, and so we pulled him in and he kicked Steve's butt. So that was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, otherwise, otherwise it's just like a lot of stories, a lot of laughing, a lot of giving each other shit. You know, just like any other hunting camp, except for this yeah. camp has got, you know, nine people in it, and um, everyone everyone likes to talk. Everyone's good at talking. Everyone, um, so there's lots of like debates and arguments and stuff like that, which is which is fun. So, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's hard to get in a word. It can be for uh, sure. And if you uh, get a word in, yeah. if you get a word in, and it's a debate, you better be very well prepared to defend it because yep. you'll get jumped <laughs> out if you don't. <laughs> So uh, I'd probably just sit in the corner of that crew and just listen. Yeah, you got to be prepared to be told you're wrong and uh, try to try to fight that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, man, it's cool. Uh, I mean, all those guys. I mean, both the folks who are on camera, like Steve and Kale and Yanni, or the guys behind the camera, like Chris and Rick and Seth. I mean, just super funny, cool people. Uh, we had a. We had a good time. I will say, you know, the only thing else I would add about it, the only downside to the whole trip was just how long it was. It was a long trip. I mean, I was gone for 12 days from home, and um, that was tough, being away from being away from Everett and Kylie. You know, after our trip, we took this spring, or not spring, this uh, September. How long were you? Well, I was gone longer than you, but I think I was gone for 11 days for that whitetail hunt. Yeah, I think I was gone seven. Yeah. Seven or eight, something like that. Yeah. And after that one, I kind of told myself, kind of made a plan in my head that I didn't want to do any trips that long anymore. I wanted to try to keep future trips like seven days or less, just, you know, so it's not quite as tough on Kylie. And it's just, you know, it's just hard. It's, It's surprisingly difficult to be like back when I, before I had kids, I was always thinking that it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but now I'm realizing that it is. Um, and so in this case, it, you know, it was a trip that I was still long for. I didn't have the ability to really control the scheduling and, um, 12 days definitely had me missing, missing my family. So yeah. Well, and as Peter said, our group chat died without you being around to, (laughs) to spark that. So I know your family and your group chat. I guess uh, I guess I'm more important to some folks than I realized. <laughs> Something t- something's like shocking me. I can't believe Peter wouldn't have some kind of odd picture to share with the group or something yeah. to keep the group text going. <laughs> the things that guy on his on his he, phone. He'd huh? be very good at that. Yep. yep. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah, man. Welcome home. Congratulations. Looked like a, just a incredible trip. Incredible hunt. And uh, glad it, everything went well for you, getting across the border and getting home. And uh, 
no horror stories, so that's always good, right? Yes, no horror stories. I'm back. Glad to be back. And um, so, all right. Well, I think we should wrap it up, man. Thank you for uh, hopping on here and playing host. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you having me on. And since I'm hosting, I feel like I should maybe get to do the the sign off. Do I get uh, to do the sign off? Yeah, go ahead. Take it. Take it away. Well, let, let, let's see how I can do that. You might have to hire me. Uh, <laughs> thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please leave a comment and review on our iTunes. Helps everyone else see it. Leave five stars. And uh, until next time, stay wired to hunt. Very well played. That, how, how did I do? Yeah, that was, that was pretty good. <laughs>I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.